Throughout history, strange disappearances have certainly captivated audiences, especially if you add that that person was famous or maybe even well-known. Well, that just kind of ups the ante, so to speak, and our imaginations can run wild. However, few tales are as frightening and freaky as the one we're going to share tonight, the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller, grandson to the tycoon icon, the Rockefeller family, and son to the one-time New York governor, Nelson Rockefeller. Now, he disappeared as a young man while on a traveling expedition in the Azmat region of Papua New Guinea. The mysterious Azmat tribe, treacherous, dense jungles surrounded by deadly croc and shark-infested waters, all just to start the story with. But then there was the grainy, forgotten film footage shot by another researcher. Was he dead? Was he alive? Was he held against his will? Or was he just a black sheep of the family that walked away from his fortunes? Join us tonight as Bill and I guide you into this terrifying story, one of the most talked about disappearances since Amelia Earhart, here on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So I, I got to admit, I had not heard anything about this story when you gave me the idea, but you know, you started talking about missing millionaires and or millionaire sons, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. and then cannibals. And I thought, okay, that, that jungle that tribes and yeah. And I, I do very much like the romantic notion of this guy just saying, you know what, I'm going to walk away from all of it and just live the simple life. Cause I, I'm one of those people who's never going to be a millionaire and I have to be happy with the simple life. So <laughs> uh, I think I'm doing pretty good with it, but uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm an American. I've heard of the Rockefellers. It's like American royalty. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and I, but I cannot believe I had not heard his story before until you mentioned it. And so then, of course, you know, I started doing my reading and, and getting my facts together. And man, there's, there's a lot going it on. It checks with this a lot story. of boxes. It really does for what I mean, we try got, to do here on Nightmares and the Lost yeah, Highway. Yeah, you, you've got, you know, primitive tribes. You have cannibalism. You have government conspiracies. You have you know, private investigators and the and, vainness of the rich, you know, you know crazy, politics. Yeah. And, you have, you know, grainy found footage and, and all this crazy, crazy stuff going on. But this is a really, really interesting story. Well, the Azmat tribe, let's start a little bit there. The Azmat tribe of central Papua New Guinea for centuries had only been an enigma to the outside world. The tribe, for the most part, was untouched by outsiders' influence. They were known for colorful dress with beads and shells and their elaborate wood totem carvings, and we'll get back to that. In, in their region, even as recently as, as not all that long ago, there, there are no roads there. There's no road. There's one major city with an airstrip. There's one airstrip for the whole region. They, modern technology is just lost on Doesn't them. Doesn't exist. It's not there. They don't have it. If you don't have a canoe or a small paddle boat, you're not getting to these guys. Yeah, un- until 50 years ago, there was no steel, no iron, no paper. And it's a, and that's kind of surprising, actually. Is it? It's an area, it's very wild, but it's rich with, with natural resources and abundant game and vegetation. I mean, it's really the kind of place ripe for exploitation. Yeah. And just kind of happened to escape it for whatever reason. And it could be, again, the cannibalistic natives. <laughs> but, that is a slight deterrent, you would think. But for them, you know, the idea of cannibals, oh, they just eat people. No, 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 no. I do want to stress that these cultures don't believe in it as like part of their diet. This is a retributive thing. Yes. This is revenge. Revenge. They don't do it to eat. When you do them wrong, they respond. And this is their response. Now, that does come into play in the story later on as we talk about the background and what leads up to this. And and not that Michael Rockefeller did anything wrong. You could say it was the ultimate case of a wrong place, wrong time for him, unfortunately. And maybe a little... New Age ignorance. Well, anyhow, the Sazmat tribe, there was the fact, you know, as Bill mentioned, you know, cannibalism, headhunting, 
they truthfully, I guess to put it plainly, they just had no love or patience for trespassers at all on what they considered their sacred property. As a matter of fact, they didn't, they, their whole world was, was their region. Mm -hmm. They saw anybody from outside that region as like a spiritual interloper. The, the first white people seen in the region were spirits in their mind because I mean, that was their whole world. Everything right. beyond they didn't that. They know any better. Yeah, They'd never was, seen it before. So yeah, I mean, the, the idea that they didn't take kindly to trespass, the, the concept was, they didn't even understand what a trespasser was. They thought literally the world was yeah. just right there. So when you, when you showed up, you were like an a interloper from a whole different type of, you know, like I said, the first white people were spirits from a spiritual realm in their mind. And that's, that's a good way to put it. You know, still there was a very select handful that were brave or I might even say dumb enough to travel these river, shallow river canals that followed up the brockish waters to make contact. When this occurred, it was usually with someone from the tribe that was much younger, as the older elders strictly prohibited any outside communication. Just shut it down. We don't want it. As Bill was saying, it was not only a physical thing, but almost a spiritual thing to allow you know, whites, people, anybody else to come into their area, their domain. When pictures were taken of the tribal members and stories of this elusive tribe started to leak out to the outside world, it was captivating, tantalizing. And it was these such things that lured in our young Michael Rockefeller, a Harvard graduate, to seek out and explore this particular tribe. And he had a special interest in their artwork in particular and these totem-like poles. So to get into a little bit of background on Michael Rockefeller, since Eric loves his history. Oh, I do. Michael was born May 18th, 1938. He's the son of New York governor and later U.S. Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. Again, the Rockefeller name is, you know, American royalty. Grandson of American financier John D. Rockefeller. That's, that's the one, you know. That's uh, the big one. Great-grandson of Standard Oil co-founder John D. Rockefeller Sr. There's the bigger one. So, uh, Michael attended the Buckley School in New York City and graduated from the Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire. Uh, now, in school, Michael was a student senator and notable varsity wrestler, so athletically gifted and, and an intelligent young man by all accounts. He graduated cum laude from Harvard University, which we all know is not easy to achieve, with a degree in history and economics. Michael served six months in 1960 as a private in the United States Army. And, of course, Michael was expected to follow in his father's footsteps and become a titan of industry. Michael, however, wanted something more exciting than sitting in boardrooms and meetings, and I can't say I blame the young man. He was kind of the black sheep. So after his time in, his, in the Army, Michael joined an expedition to New Guinea for Harvard's Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology to study the Danny tribe, which is, you know, they're in the Azmat region, and they're... Asmat tribe. I mean, there's a lot of different tribes. There are several different tribes, tribes, and they war against each other and everything that you'd expect. Now, as part of this expedition, they were filming the documentary that is now known as Dead Birds, and Michael acted as the sound recordist for this. Now, again, like I said earlier, it's it's just a a, an area that's just rich with wild natural resources, and uh, you know, just had not had a lot of exposure to the outside world, but they had had some, and again, that was going to lead to some unfortunateness for Michael here. Now, Michael and a friend of his briefly left this expedition to study the Azmat tribe of what was called Southern Netherlands, New Guinea, so-called because the Netherlands had laid claim to this, and they were trying to colonize the region. So they had, uh, I think they had some missionaries and some, some, some base colonies established there. Now, again, the Azmat had very limited contact with the outside world before the arrival of white people. Like we said, they, they, they just, any lands beyond their island were spiritual lands. And so when white people came across from the sea, we were, they were seen as supernatural yeah, That was bad. That was a bad thing. Now the locals were patient. They put up with Michael and his team taking their pictures and asking questions, but they would not allow them to purchase any of their artifacts. Now, like you talked about, the woodworkings. Apparently they, they do these amazing woodworkings and they build, for lack of a better word, totem poles. Mm -hmm. but, but they have these just really elaborate, beautiful carvings, and that was what Michael really developed an interest in. And those are actually called biz poles is yeah. the proper term. But by using the word totem, I think people can better visualize you, you, what it you is. You can get an idea, yeah. Uh, Michael, of course, was undeterred. You know, he was, he, he saw this as a world that was fascinating. It was at odds with what he knew, their practices, their beliefs. Uh, I, I believe um, polygamy was pretty common, uh, drinking the blood of one's enemies, just all kinds of weird things. And I mean, okay, not weird. I don't want to say weird. This, 
their culture was very different from the culture that he grew up in. It was very in. elusive and intriguing for Michael. Yeah. So he wanted to bring that world back to his world. He wanted people to see these things he had seen. Again, this is a adventurous young man, and he's seen these, these primitive cultures and their beliefs, and he, he wants other people to see these things. So during, you know, in the in-between here, his father had opened a museum of primitive art, and after he'd returned from the original expedition, Michael took a position on the board of the museum, and he had decided he was going to return. He was going to seek out more of this primitive art, and he knew a place that had perfect examples. And I want to jump in here. His dad, uh, Nelson, I think this says a lot. You know, obviously, as you said, he was a Harvard graduate, Michael was, and he was expected to follow suit with the generations before him. Yeah. And here we have kind of the black sheep, Michael. His father kind of embraced it. I mean, he's, he got the museum, essentially, for Michael's work. And he's like, I, I can just kind of envision, it's like, son, I know you're not following the traditional Rockefeller pattern here. But I'm going to help you. You know, if you if you want to, if this is what you're love and devout on, I'm going to give you a museum. You can go get all these artifact pieces, and I'm, you know, they were well, working together. They had a great relationship. It seemed there also could have been the ulterior motive of, look, I'll support this, and we'll get it out of his system. And oh, then, that that could be too. I mean, I, I I'm not going to discount that. I'm yeah. just, as as me being the person that I am, I'm going to sit here and say that I, could go either way, truthfully, with but. money and all that. You know, maybe maybe he just said, well, I'll humor it for now, and then. Neither one of us know. have that type of money to, well, to, to spend for those type of and, dreams. Yeah, but. and I'm certainly not in the right position to be able to understand what goes on in a Rockefeller's <laughs> head. So, Now, on one of these expeditions, uh, and it wasn't real clearly defined if this was when Michael was over as a representative of the Harvard or when he had decided to stay a few months later, but at some point in this time, he actually had made contact with what was described as some younger generation of the Azmat tribe and made some type of a deal, an arrangement, a trade, a barter. I don't think it was for money. I think it was more of a trade for one of the biz poles, these totem poles that Michael was just so infatuated with. And so he had returned back to New York to talk to his dad, you know, as we were talking about with the museum. And, you know, Michael was feeling pretty proud of himself. You know, he's, he feels like he has secured this, this business deal and his, father's mind business uh, pole biz pole and so he was expecting this biz pole to come through and weeks go by and months go by and nothing well again they didn't want to part with these things and, no. and this is a very important symbol for their people so that's it's it's a it's not something that the the elders are going to give up a little about this azmat biz pole this is carved from a single mangrove tree the bispole is not just a piece of fancy wood carved out of art. To the Azmat people, the bispole was a very sacred, uh, very tribal influence, something Michael honestly didn't seem to grasp. To them, it was not art. It was literally the home of their deceased ancestors. Well, that definitely explains why they wouldn't want to give it up. Yes. For you see, if someone in their tribe had passed away, more specific, if they were killed by another warring tribe or maybe died to the deadly jungle or the rivers, the tribe would get together to carve this massive, typically a 10 to 15 foot tall totem piece as an offering to the slain soul to stay inside, a home, if you will, until the tribe could avenge their death. And this goes back to what Bill was talking about, which could include cannibalism, headhunting or whatever. So if one of your one of your relatives of the Azmat tribe went out, got killed by a warring clan. This bispole would be carved in their honor. The spirit would live there until you could go seek down this other warrior from the other tribe and kill them, drink their blood, eat their flesh, and get revenge. And then and only then could that spirit pass on in peace. So these bispoles were not even kept up against the huts and the villages. They were so fearful, the Azmat people, of the spirits that inhabited them because they were considered violent, unrested spirits. They could be menacing. They could be angry. They could get upset. So instead, they wouldn't be placed right along up with the villages, but often along the, the roads, the paths, where they would see them almost on a daily, if not a for sure weekly basis to keep that you know, remem remembrance up, but far enough away from the village 
that they didn't have to fear retribution from the spirits. So to put it in layman's terms, you know, this might be similar to someone walking up from another country coming to you and saying, hey, I'd like to barter for that coffin or tombstone. I mean, that's the way it was. It wasn't art. I want to buy that urn with your grandpa's ashes. That'd be swell. I just want to put that in a museum somewhere. You know, so you kind of get the picture. It, you know, it just wasn't proper. And I'm sure when the younger generation Azmat tribe members, you know, approached the elders with Michael's offering to barter, I am sure it insulted and probably infuriated them. You know, just who did this rich white guy think he was anyhow, you know, strolling into our village and wanting to buy this type of sacred piece to put in an art museum or do whatever with. Well, like I said, after he, you know, started working at the museum and he knew where to get some of this art, and apparently this deal hadn't come together the way he'd hoped it would. So he was he he decided he was going to return to New Guinea and, and, and spend more time with the Azmat and hopefully... Check on that bizball. Uh, yeah, yeah, check on the pole and, and accumulate some some of their distinctive woodworks. And this was all fine. You know, he, he was traveling the region and, and was making his inroads and he collected some items. When the fateful day of November 17th, 1961 rolls around. Now, Rockefeller and Dutch anthropologist Rene Wassing were in a 40-foot handmade catamaran with two local guides about three miles from shore. I think they were crossing the mouth of a river at, where it met with the ocean. Uh, the Betts J River. Yeah. And the guide's names was Simon and Leo. Okay. I didn't have that. <laughs> but yeah, they were crossing the mouth of the river there. And, you know, unfortunately, conflicting tides and winds, they all kind of come together there. And this would have been like, um, you've heard us say it before, brockish waters. Yeah. The river, of course, is freshwater mixing with the sea. So it's a mix of salt and fresh water. So a sudden squall comes in and it creates these dangerous water conditions. We've talked about squalls before on the uh, Lake Michigan Triangle, but it's just basically a horrendous windstorm. And the waters, they, they, they were described as being still one minute and then see, savagely heaving the next. And the waves eventually swamped the outboard motor on this boat, and they just began to drift aimlessly out to sea. Uh, eventually, waves would, would capsize their boat. Now, the two guides, they swam for help. Uh, but after a while, it just didn't seem like anybody was on their way. Now, remember, this is the 17th. I think that was about five miles away from the coast, too. So that, that was a good little swim for the guides yeah. to... So early on the, the day of November 19th, after drifting for almost two days at this point, Rockefeller looks at Wassing, he looks at the shore, and he, he's like, we're just going to keep drifting out to sea. There, there's nothing. Who further and further away. So it's about eight in the morning. Michael strips down to his undershorts. He ties on two empty gas cans to his belt, or around his waist, I suppose, if he's not wearing a belt, if he's just in his underwear. And he tells Wassing, I think I can make it. And then he begins to swim for shore, which at this point in time, they were estimated to be anywhere from three to 10 miles from shore. Now, Rene Wassing, I don't know if you had this in here, he couldn't swim with a lick. He could not swim. So I can imagine, you know, Michael's like, hey, I'm going to swim to the shore. You got this. Just kind of yeah. stay here. Just hang on to What's the boat. What's the poor What's guy going to do? do? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he was hanging on to some ropes and some nets on the flipped over boat. I mean, he didn't really have a boat yeah. in this situation. So later that day, Wassing and the, the remains of the boat are spotted from the air, and he's rescued the next morning. So that'd be the morning of the 20th. Now, unfortunately, Rockefeller's never seen again. No. Or is he? <laughs> Despite an intensive two-week search effort, which involved ships, airplanes, helicopters, thousands of locals searching the jungle and the, the coast, uh, Michael apparently disappeared at the age of 23. Now, John F. Kennedy, President John F. Kennedy actually, of course, was friends with the Rockefellers. He even sent a telegram uh, out to the United States Navy fleet who joined the hunt. I mean, that's, it's the Rockefellers. I mean, yeah. you know, come on. You're, you you're going to call in your coins. But, I mean, so we had the, the Navy even looking besides all of these other yeah. countless hosts of people. But, yeah, his body was never found, and he was legally declared deceased in 1964. Now, the most common theory for what happened is, is that he died from exposure, exhaustion, or drowning while swimming to shore. Or possibly, you know, more, less likely, but still possible, he was attacked by a shark or a saltwater crocodile during his swim. Now, saltwater crocodiles, if you're unfamiliar, these are... Massive. This isn't like the alligators or crocodiles you'd see here in America. These, these saltwater crocodiles are huge, like 20, 25 feet, I think, at times. They're, they're massive. Monsters. Uh, but there was speculation that due to headhunting and cannibalism in the region. What if? You know, some, some of the Azmat people that Rockefeller had visited still engaged in these practices. What if Rockefeller had been killed and eaten by tribespeople? Well, there's a, a village not too far from where he would have swam to shore called Otsjenep. 
and and I may have horribly butchered that. I don't speak asthmat. <laughs> but apparently those people had some stories, some some tales, even ranging all the way up into modern memory where maybe things started to kind of leak out. I do want to jump back when they declared him legally dead in 1964. Nelson, Michael's father, as well as uh, Michael's twin sister, actually made a trip over to that area of, of New Guinea to kind of help with the aid of the search, to talk with the reporters and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, three years after basically the last time he had been seen, he was declared dead in 1964. The family was starting to get back to normal uh, as much as they could, obviously, with, with missing a member of the family. Even Michael's twin sister wrote a book, When Grief Calls Forth the Healing, a memoir of losing a twin. So things kind of started to get back to normal. So now this stuff starts to leak out, and it's kind of like picking a wound. I mean, there was a lot of people that's like, just leave the family to, to weep, to deal, to cope. You know, this has been hard enough on them. Three years, they finally declared him singly dead. Now all this stuff starts leaking out. Oh, cannibals may have ate him, or you know, maybe he just ran away from the family because he hated the family. And a lot of this stuff made it out to those cheap news tabloids, and you know, was kind of painting a bad picture. So there was a lot of this that I don't know if that fueled it even more, but a lot of people was resenting a lot of these stories too. Well, and and, and this continued off and on for a long time. Here I have 1969 journalist Milton Mocklin mm-hmm. traveled to the island to investigate the disappearance. And he, he kind of dismissed stories of Rockefeller living as a captive or that he had turned native and just was living in the jungle. Yeah, he actually was a, a writer for Adventure Magazine, which was quite a, a outstanding magazine of its time for, you know, just the wild man living off the land, you know, adventure kind of stuff. But he had heard of an Australian that had visited the area and said that they had saw a white man with a beard that even matched some of the photos they had seen. And, you know, that's kind of, I think, what launched him into this was he wanted to see, let's put an end to this. Is he alive or is he dead? Well, I, and I think he eventually, his conclusion was what little evidence he did scrounge up, he felt that the idea that he had been killed yeah. By the locals was was the most likely story. Yes, he was. He felt he was not alive. Yeah, that well, uh, and and again, we we get back to the idea of of cannibalism as a vengeance. The village of Ochtjenep, I think, is, is if I remember the name right, that's basically where Rockefeller would have come to shore. And unfortunately, they had had some of their leaders killed by a Dutch patrol in 1958. And they would all, let's face it, look alike yeah. to them. And then even the year before, in 1957, which was three years before Rockefeller's first visit to the region. A massacre had occurred between two of the tribes, the Ochjenep and the Omadisep villages, and they had killed dozens of each other's men. Now, how do we get to the Dutch people being involved? Well, Dutch, like I said, they were trying to settle in this region. They were trying to colonize it. They saw this infighting with the locals as like, well, we can't control this region. And they thought it was going to make them look weak. You know, maybe somebody else was going to move in and try to take over. So they stepped in in an attempt to stop the violence. Now, they went in with the idea of disarming the Ostjanep tribe, but in a series of cultural misunderstandings, they ended up opening fire on the Ostjanep. Oh, my. Now this, bad to worse. This is their first encounter of firearms. They don't know anything about it. And here come these weird spiritual entities you know, with projectile weapons. Yeah. Now, in, the seri- in, in this attack, four of the Ostjanep's war leaders were shot and killed. They watched it happen. And in this bloody encounter was probably still in their heads when this bedraggled, rich white kid Assuming comes Michael swimming to shore. swims to shore. Hey, guys. And, of course, that gives them the motivation for them to want to take some, a revenge on someone from what they called the white tribe. Again, this was part of an eye-for-an-eye revenge. So they killed four of ours. We're going to kill one of theirs. And, again, it's just wrong place, wrong time. And Rockefeller finds himself the victim of this, this savage practice. Now, officially. There was no record of the Asmat people ever killing and eating a white person. Well, no. Officially. You think they're going to keep all that stuff on their laptops or yeah. something? You know? <laughs> now, a little bit back on Milt Macklin, the uh, writer for Adventure Magazine. Now, he had set out, like I had said earlier, to, to try to really follow up on the alleged sighting of what they thought could be Michael living alongside of the Asmat tribe. So, 
with him working for Adventure Magazine, it sounds like he had some financial backing. He had a fleet of cameramen, and literally they filmed, they set a room full of video reels. They literally filmed Milt day and night, anytime he was out with talking with any of the tribe. So all of this, just miles and miles and miles of video footage. And then, as you said, he kind of got into it, and there was just really not enough merit there to prove that you know he was alive or he'd walked away from the family fortune, was living peacefully alongside the Azmat. Again, it's kind of a romantic notion that someone as affluent as he would have been. Yeah. I mean, we look at it as like, oh, he gave it all up to, I mean, let's be honest, in this day and age, nobody does that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but Milt had spent all this time. And everything. So he decided, you know, he'd actually went out to, st- to do a documentary. That's the purpose of all this video film. But when kind of things changed midstream, he decided he was going to write a book. He actually did complete that book, and it was on the New York Times bestseller. And it was simply titled The Search for Michael Rockefeller. But all of this video footage, basically the team said, well, what do you want me to do with it? And he's like, well, I mean, let's just keep it for now. But I don't plan on ever going and doing anything with it. So it was locked under in a room in a key, dark room. Now, fast forward 40 years before those films would see the light of day again. And, you know, over all of that stuff, all, all that film, it, it did leak out to some other people that there was that film available. So 40 years after that film footage was shot, in 2009, another filmmaker interested in creating a documentary on the subject reached out to Milt and said, hey, you know, I got this team I'm putting together. I'm going to try to do what you had started to do, a documentary, and would you allow us access to just kind of go through some of the film? You know, that was back closer to the time of the disappearance. So obviously, we're 40 years present now. Could we use some of that footage? Milt's like, I haven't done anything with it in 40 years. You know, have at it. It's yours. I wrote my book. I did my thing. So they start, the team starts going through this. They found what at the time was awe inspiring. The team had uncovered a whole like 30 seconds, but this 30 seconds was moving of an Azmat warring clan, hundreds of canoes coming down a river, complete elaborate tribal dress. Hundreds of these canoes, hundreds and hundreds of dark-complected Azmat tribal members shooting arrows, doing their war dances while on the canoes, and in a 30-second clip, very, very noticeable, standing out against the rest of the tribe, is a tall white guy, totally buck-naked, with a beard, and he was paddling one of these canoes. Now, were they possibly looking at Michael Rockefeller? Had Milt possibly filmed him? which was the whole purpose he went to do this documentary, and then it never got caught. Who else could this be? You know, he obviously wasn't the correct skin color or even the build. He was much taller than anybody else in the Warren Party. What the heck was he doing here? Well, and along those lines, uh, about a decade after Michael disappeared, National Geographic was in the region filming a project on the Azmat tribe, and they had very similar footage. They were filming footage of the Azmat rowing their boats. And in one photo taken during this time, there appears to be a white man rowing one of these boats with the tribe. And some, of course, speculated that man could be Michael, um, the, the photographer of record that Michael Kirk. He gave his take on the picture, saying that he wasn't particularly aware of a light-skinned man in one of the canoes, but he did recall a reference to an albino male when looking through his journal. So, yeah. you know, could it have been Michael? Could it have just been, you know, an al- you know someone with alb- albinism? I mean. So in his book, Rocky Goes West, author Paul Tui claims Rockefeller's mother hired a private investigator in 1979 to try and solve Michael's disappearance. The truth of this story is kind of up in the air, but Tui claims that the private investigator traded a boat engine for the skulls of three men. And I would like to point out that as I said, three men, I held up two fingers. I did to notice that. I wasn't going to call you out so on it though. For that, I can't count even on my fingers. <laughs> uh, for three men, three. You got your thumb up technically. So I'm going to give it to you. The tribe claimed that these were the only white men that they had ever killed. Now the private investigator returned to New York and he handed these skulls over to the family, convinced that one of them was the skull of Michael. If this did happen, the family has never publicly commented on it. However, the History Channel program Vanishings reported that it was documented that Rockefeller's mother did pay a $250,000 reward to this investigator which was offered for final proof of whether Rockefeller was alive or dead. So, Those did he, did they? kind of adds yeah. credence to it. Yeah. 
another piece of evidence that could help suggest that he was killed by locals is the documentary Keep the River on Your Right, in which documentarian Tobias Schneebaum states that he spoke with some of the Azmat villagers from Ostjanep who did describe finding and uh, eating Rockefeller on the riverside, exhausted from his swim. So. Hmm. Now, early in the 2000s, there was yet another attempt on the documentary. Now, you guys can see all these documentaries, all these trying to reach out. The Rockefeller name is oh, what's yeah. really keeping this story alive. I mean, you know, inquiring minds well, want to know. Well, how many people disappear every year and no one cares? No know? one cares. I'm sorry. Well, no, he's, but, he's yeah. famous. He yeah. comes from a famous family, American royalty. So there, there comes a gentleman by the name of Carl Hoffman. Now, he is a best-selling author and actually an editor for National Geographic. And he decided personally he was going to get to the bottom of this story once and for all. You know, he himself was in a unique position to be able to use his sources at National Geographic. He had a small film crew, and, and he once again set off to Papua New Guinea area to seek out the Azmat tribe. Now, after the passing of 50 years, his hopes was that enough time had lapsed that the old elders had possibly passed on, passed their mantle to some of the younger generations, and he hoped and gleamed that he might be able to learn the truth from some of those younger generations. Now, he goes on record and he stated, and I quote, I became aware of Rockefeller in my 20s, and his story truly never left me. It just kind of seemed to haunt him. It stuck in there with him. So, Carl Hoffman goes, he spends months and months living alongside and with the Azmat tribes. And after some time, he earned their trust. Yeah, he initially didn't tell anybody why he was there. He, kind he of kind a top of kept secret. that to himself. I can see this. We're going to use National Geographic's money. We're going to, we're going to have well, them flip it, the bill. We're going to go over. We're going to say we're going to get some generic It's possible stuff. National Geographic was in on it, but the locals. He didn't tell the locals while he was there for a long time. Well, he said he had often breached the subject, but was shut down very quickly. Anytime he would bring up, you know, the name Michael Rockefeller or even, you know, a white man traveling to that area and he was inquisitive about it. But finally, one evening, a couple of the Azmat tribal members spoke to him in private. Now, they swore him to secrecy, not only for his protection, but their own, because they said what we're about to tell you is a tribal age-old secret. Now, according to them, Michael did make it to shore, paddling on his back using the gas can. Uh, I heard one instance a can. I heard another instance there was two. Well, I the the word jerry can was used, but I'm pretty sure that's an old term for gas, gas can. can. Yes, so. yes, it is. But anyhow, he was using that as a flotation device. Uh, it was said that there were three asthmat elders who were leading an asthmat hunting party of about 40 to 50 members, and they'd pulled off on the banks of the river to take a break. Now, in doing so, one of the elders looked out and spotted what they described as a strange white creature splashing in the water several yards off the shore. They alerted their hunting group and immediately drew their spears and arrows and went out to see what the strange beast was. I believe they initially thought it was a crocodile. Some sort of crocodile is, is part of the story I heard. Okay. And so it was a potential food source. Well, it either frightened them or they thought it was food. I mean, it said they pulled their spears, bows and arrows. I mean, they hadn't even got up to see what it was yet. But upon approaching closer, the elders looked down and seen it was a white man, one they were familiar with. Well, they, they used the word Tuan. Okay. And that's what they referred to as the white people. And they saw him as being a white man. Yes, he was familiar, but he was also familiar as in like he looked a lot like the Dutch people. Yes. And the story is is that some of the, the Azmat that were there were the sons of the war leaders who had been killed when the Dutch tried to disarm ah. them. So these guys, more vicious, than anybody, circle. these guys more than anybody had a reason to want to wanna get some revenge. Well, they said this young man paddling with this flotation device smiled and he looked up at him and opened his eyes, knowing he had finally reached the shore and was about to be rescued. Now, the first elder did not reach out to take Michael's hand when he reached it up. He looked solemnly at the other two elders, and then in unison, all three nodded without saying a word. At this point, the first elder did outstretch his arm. He grasped Michael's fatigued hand and helped pull him up into their canoe. Michael thanked them over and over again, and the tribe began to do what was described as a chant in unison as they rowed their boats. Now, Michael, totally fatigued, he'd been out there, you know, as Bill said, it was anywhere from like Three to three, 15 miles or something? It was three to 12 was what they three were Three to saying. 12 miles. 
he he was on the swim team. He was, well, athletic, he was athletic at Harvard. He was a, you know, like a highly decorated wrestler. But so. again, with the waves being choppy, that's that's going to do a toll on your body. I don't care who you are. Well, ocean, Olympic medalist. Ocean swimming is fine when you're not when you're far from shore. The closer you get, the harder it is. Yes, so. yeah. So so he just totally collapses in the bottom of one of these canoes and says even dozes off to sleep from fatigue. Now, he was awakened when the canoe skiffed across the shore or of like an embankment. Michael once again set up, expecting to see the familiar signs of the village or perhaps his bizpole that he had come for. But instead, the tribe had taken him to what was described as a desolate area up a river channel. One of the men then approached him with spear drawn and stuck him in the side. Now, Michael quickly figured out he was not being rescued. He frantically pulled his tired body off to the other side, rolling over where another tribal member stuck him in the other side with a spear. And at this point, Michael threw a leg over the side of the canoe, bailed out into the muddy water, and started trying to crawl up on the muddy banks. The chanting then stopped. Michael looked around as one of the tribal elders approached, the same one with a spear in hand. Michael let out a scream you know, trying to crawl further and further. At this point, a lot of the tribal warring party begin to laugh as if they were mocking him. I can only imagine what's going through his mind at this point in time. There's, this is not good and there's, there's no way out of this. Because he was pierced in both sides by spears, two of the tribal men came up and lifted him up underneath each one of his armpits up on their shoulders and started to carry him down this muddy trail, if you will, to a clearing with a single large tree in the middle of this clearing. Now, Michael was taken to the base of the tree, gently dropped to his knees. The laughing stopped, and the chanting once again continued. Michael was bleeding from the wounds on both sides when an elder kneeled down beside him and helped him to lift his head, but in doing so, exposing his neck. As Michael did, his throat was cut, followed by an axe used to totally behead him. The Azmat tribal members said they then chopped his body up, removed his brains from his skull, which is said were reserved for the three elders, and the body was roasted on an open fire where all members partook of Michael's flesh. In a vow of secrecy and fear for retaliation for what they had done, yet this man insulted them, and the elders' decision to end his life in this manner was one for the tribe, and a just one in their eyes. The first elder who helped Michael in the canoe is said to have had Michael's skull and had it for a period of time adorned with paint, shells, and beads and displayed it proudly in his house for many years. Now, you had mentioned three skulls were brought forth by a private investigator, and one yeah. of them was because it said it vanished in the story I was reading. So maybe that's that kind of goes along with that. Well, not long after killing Michael, the villages in the region were swept by a cholera epidemic. And, of course, the villagers believe this was divine punishment for killing Rockefeller. So it's another reason why they didn't want to discuss it, because they felt that they had been punished for what they'd done. And, you know, obviously, eventually, over time, I'm sure they would learn that this was not one of the men responsible right. for what had happened. He wasn't even part of the same tribe, so to speak. Now, Hoffman, you know, he spent a lot of time there. And, and as he was leaving one of the villages for the final time, he did witness a, a man acting out a scene where someone was killed in a very similar manner to the one Eric just described. And so he stopped and they recorded it. And the man's speech was later translated as, quote, don't tell this story to any other man or any other village because this story is only for us. Don't speak. Don't speak and tell the story. I hope you remember it and you must keep this for us. I hope, I hope this is for you and you only. Don't talk to anyone forever, to other people or another village. If people question you, don't answer. Don't talk to them because this story is only for you. If you tell it to them, you'll die. I'm afraid you will die. You'll be dead. Your people will be dead if you tell the story. You keep the story in your house to yourself, I hope, forever, forever. So they really believed, like, and again, like I said, maybe it was because they found out that eventually that the Rockefeller was not part of the right tribe. But the one tribe, as you said, had already been gunned down, literally. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, Michael so, wasn't part of the Dutch. Yes, but they were very fearful for yeah, retaliation, yeah. you know, just with a few. Yeah. You know, with the fire sticks, if you want to call them. One, one story goes is that the locals were so afraid to tell this story that as one Azmat tribesman was being interviewed by Hoffman, the guy repeatedly told me, never heard of Rockefeller. I'd never heard of Rockefeller. I'd never seen his 
Never heard the story. Don't know who you're talking about. The man was said to be wearing Rockefeller's glasses. Mm. And and okay. Michael had a distinctive pair of horn rim, thick rim glasses. Yep. So uh, he was a Rockefeller. I'm sure yeah. they were blinged out at least a little bit. But yeah, they, this guy supposedly was wearing Michael's glasses and just like, nope, I have no idea what you're talking face about. Face lies. Yep. So, you know, was he was he eaten by cannibals? Was he? Did he just decide to go rogue? I mean, to me, it sounds like he was eaten by cannibals, and then the whole story was suppressed for whatever reason. Which which mainly is is that the Dutch didn't want it to seem like they couldn't control the native population. I guess they'd already lost part of their colonies to Indonesia at the time. And so they were worried if they couldn't control the locals, then they were worried about a land grab. Yeah, they were going to lose what they had. So many of the artifacts that Rockefeller did collect are now part of the Michael C. Rockefeller wing of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. So there is, there is, you know, that, that, that legacy that he does have. I don't think you will find a biz pole there. To my research, I never found that he ever acquired one. So, Bill, is it time for headlines? I have my headline from Unilad.com by Gerard Kenoga, dated January 13th, 2024. That's not that long ago. That's not long ago at all. I thought this was perfect fit, though. Stone Age tribe that still practices cannibalism as form of punishment. Mm Mm-hmm. There is a tribe in Oceania, which if you're unfamiliar with geographical terms there, that's the region of like New Zealand, uh, Australia, all the islands and stuff okay, in that area. gotcha. Sounded like something out of a sci-fi book yeah. for me. I'm sorry. But uh, there's a tribe there that still uses cannibalism to punish thieves and to ward off demons, according to traveler Drew Binsky. Now, Drew is an American travel blogger who claims to have visited every country in the world. And during his travels, he spent significant time in Oceania, which I would love to be able to go to someday. It seems like beautiful. beautiful area. Beautiful place. That's what I saw Um, on TV. Well, that's where the hobbits are from, right? Absolutely. (laughs) The Shire. Now, he's interacted with people who live in some of the most remote parts of the world. And while in Papua New Guinea, there's that place again, Mm -hmm. he spent time with the Momuna tribe. And he heard stories of the neighboring Korowai tribe. And he was told that the Korowai live in a similar fashion to our stone-aged ancestors. They wear little to no clothing, and they hunt using traditional bows and arrows. He was also told that they commit cannibalism as part of a punishment. And this is a quote by uh, Binsky. Uh, I learned that the Korowai don't eat humans for enjoyment or nutritional value. It's simply a form of punishment. You steal something, you get burned over fire, and eaten. So again, it's not seen as something yeah. they do for nourishment. There's a reason for it. And he went on to say that he was told that the Korowai people believe in an evil demon named Kaku that is said to possess people and to consume them from the inside, ultimately turning them into a witch. Again, another quote. The Korowai believe that mysterious deaths like diseases are attributed to the Kakua, or evil demons who take on the human form. Kakuas are said to disguise themselves as friends or family members in, a, in an attempt to gain the trust of the tribe so they can later kill them. It's Korowai tradition to perform cannibalistic rituals on anyone believed to be a Kakua so they can protect the tribe's members. It's part of a revenge-based justice system. There we go. He did say, of course, that the tribe had strict rules around consuming human flesh. They don't eat hair, nails, or penises Ooh. of those that are eaten. And, and children under 13 are not allowed to, to eat human flesh for fear that they may become possessed by the Kakua. Hmm. The tribe has remained isolated from the outside world. And it wasn't until the 1970s that the tribe was even made aware of people outside of their area. Like, they were totally isolated until then. Uh, since then, the tribe has remained wary of others, and a jungle guide named Cornelius said that he was handed human meat and was told to eat it or leave the tribe. Uh-huh. And that's how he gained their trust. Oh. So. Well, you did a lot better job on your headline. I'm just going to commend you for that. <laughs> My, mine is loosely connected, but there was, a, there was a connection that I just thought was too odd that I just couldn't drop it. I I had hinted in the opening of tonight's episode, you know, famous disappearances, and I mentioned another. However, you might not have made that connection, and that was Amelia Earhart, the famous female pilot, obviously, that set flight records across the world. But the last place she was actually seen alive during that most fateful trip of her own, where she vanished, was New Guinea, the same area. Now, Amelia Earhart, I think pretty much everybody knows, but American aviators set flying records, championed the advancement of women in aviation. She became the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean, uh, the first person to ever fly solo from Hawaii to the U.S., uh, to the mainland. 
And during a flight, uh, you know, to circumnavigate the globe, Earhart disappeared somewhere over the Pacific in July of 1937. Her plane wreckage was never found. Have you seen the news? Are you, are, There's that, some new stuff I noticed yeah, that's been coming out week. of that they think that they may have found they may have, but they have said this before, of course. Yeah. But yes, I did think it was interesting. That was one of the things that's like, okay, this is a sign. I'm, yeah. This is supposed to be my headline. Signs importance. You know, there was some talk that, you know, we've talked about Bermuda Triangle and, and all of this, you know, could her plane have been part of that disappearance? Is that why we didn't find it? There's been rumors going around that, you know, maybe she crashed and lived out her life with the tribes you know very similar oh the stories. i read an article not that long ago that if she had survived her plane crash and she was living on those islands if she had been injured whatsoever they have coconut crabs and coconut crabs are called that because their pincers are strong enough to crack a coconut oh and so it would not be out of the question that if she were injured and weak and the like coconut crabs eaten alive yeah the coconut crabs came upon her they could have devoured her mm. That would be awful. I can't remember the gentleman's name, but there was a guy that was with her with the flight. So she oh, wasn't flying totally that. solo, but on that flight, there was another person that was with her. But the year was 1937, and it was the flight around the world. On June 1st, 1937, Amelia Earhart took off from Oakland, California on an eastbound flight around the world. It was her second attempt to become the first pilot ever to circumnavigate the globe. She flew a twin-engine Lockheed 10E Electra plane. And was accompanied, here we go, it was accompanied uh, by a navigator, Fred Noonan. Now, they flew to Miami, then down to South America, across the Atlantic, to Africa, then east to India, and then Southeast Asia. The pair reached Leh, New Guinea on June 29th, and when they reached Leh, they'd already flown 22,000 miles, and all they had left to go was 7,000 more before reaching Oakland. President Franklin D. Roosevelt had even authorized a massive two-week search for the pair, but they were never found. On July 19, 1937, Earhart and Noonan were officially declared lost at sea. Again, as we talked about, there had been many rumors of what could have happened to Earhart, the same as you know Rockefeller. Uh, maybe she crashed at sea. Maybe she survived the crash on the island. Maybe she went on to live out. Maybe she was devoured by coconut crabs. Yeah, there's been some new footage that's starting to come out, and I didn't dive into it a whole lot, but possibly plane wreckage pieces have now been found. But I just thought it was too big of a coincidence of New Guinea and a disappearance in the last you know, place of being seen. So I wanted to share that as my headline. Well, I think when we talk about cannibals, there's only one question. Would you? Would you? Would you? Have you thought about it? Would you do it? I mean, for cultural reasons, I don't think I no. could. If it was... I'm starving to death. Yeah, if your daughter party or, you know, crashed in the Andes or whatever. And I hate to even consider saying yes to that, but just like in your instance, you know, to earn the trust of a tribe, hey, eat some of Joe here. Uh, no, no. Yeah, it'd be a hard, I, I'm no. a hard pass. Not going to do it. But again, you know, it's hard to say what anyone would really do under the most extreme Life or death circumstances, I think, you know, you have to make some excuses. It comes down to the fact of, I mean, if you're starving to death and somebody has died naturally, you're not killing them to no. eat them. Obviously, they're not going to be needing that body anymore, and it, it's going to do you more good than them. Well, if you're far enough north, you run the risk of a Wendigo situation. Yeah. Don't need that. Don't need that. Don't need that. So, uh, what, yeah. what about you? How about I, you? I, I, yeah, just for cultural reasons, I don't think I could. You're you're raised with that taboo that you don't do it. Now, again, if it became life and death survival, I mean, I guess I could eat anything if it came right down to it. But you'd like to think, you know, with our species, there has to be some lines, some boundaries that are not gray that we just simply do not cross, or we become animals. So, I mean, kind of on topic. We were. I remember a story from from when I was in high school. He had a high school science teacher by the name of Mr. Wiesman. And, Shout uh, out to Mr. Wiesman. I, honestly, I assume Mr. Wiesman is no longer with us. Oh. He, he, he had to have been 60, 70, or closing in on 60 back then, I would think. He's probably no longer with And if he is, I doubt he's listening to this. The guy would be too <laughs> smart for this. But uh, we were talking about cannibalism one day in class for some reason. He had weird conversations sometimes. I don't but think he, that ever came up in our high school class. He was talking about when, you, when you're eating a human being, there's only two parts of the human body you really can't eat, and that is the lungs and the penis, because those tissues 
and and bear with me because you know they get larger the more you chew on them. Oh, oh. Well, we all laughed because you know we were disgusting teenagers and oh, you know, yeah. You know, but uh, yeah, and it got, we had a lot of weird conversations. I heard he eventually lost his job. I, I can maybe understand maybe, why. Maybe, yeah. But uh, well, when you said when you eat a human. Well, I don't know. It wasn't maybe even if you eat a human. You literally said when you well, eat maybe, a human. Maybe the assumption is we're going to have to. I mean, it could be yeah. Mad Max next week like, at the rate we're going. Quivers, so. you know, shivers. Up right, before we go. Before we go. I did have an alternative question I was going to ask. Okay. Fire. Which was, do you have any good cannibal jokes, of which I have two? I, you caught me totally unprepared. I have two. Okay. Uh, two cannibals are eating a clown. One looks at the other and says, does this taste funny to you? <laughs> And the other <laughs> Typical is... Typical dad joke. The other is, uh, what does a cannibal do when he passes his girlfriend in the woods? I don't know. He wipes. Oh. <laughs> that was terrible. Oh. That's the worst one. Please keep listening, folks. I swear it'll get better. <laughs> yeah, don't give up on us. <laughs> I mean, it, well, if you've made it to what? We're at like 150 something now. If you've Five made it this years far, in, or fifth, starting our fifth season here. I'm sorry for that. Uh, don't be sorry. It's, it's a good dad joke. <laughs> it is what it is. We hope that you've enjoyed at least a part of what we've talked about tonight. Some of what we said. Some you can skip the last five, ten yeah. minutes. Of yet another example of episode that you'll find here on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks so much for listening all. Hey, real quick, call to action. I think Eric would agree. We'd like to grow this Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Absolutely. If you could, if you're listening on Apple, if you would go and give us a review and, and rate us. Uh, if you have some feedback, that's fine too. Uh, whatever whatever platform you're listening, follow us, rate us, give us some reviews. That helps get some recognition and gets our name out there. We do have a Facebook page, Nightmares on the Lost Highway. You can easily find us if you want to communicate with us. If you want to share some uh, possibilities for future podcasts with us, you know, reach out. We want to talk with you guys. Despite an intensive two-week search, search, search. search. That's a search at church. Yeah. <laughs> This isn't like the crocodile or alligator you see in the swamps here in Missouri. Missouri. We got alligators and crocodiles. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love. But we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.